This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you're wondering why we're looking at Luke chapter 18 this morning, it's because last week we looked at Luke chapter 18, and the next time we're together we'll look at Luke 18. But I am always encouraged in God's providence how on a day in which we celebrate the resurrection, how this passage, I think, is particularly applicable to the idea of the resurrection, especially the purpose of the resurrection, which is a vindication of our justification. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke, chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, there is indeed no one like you. You alone, O Lord, know all our needs. You know all the ways in which we fall short. Please reach us by your word, O Father. Reach us by the power of your Spirit, Reach us so that we might see the work of your Son. This we ask in Christ's mighty name. Amen. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. I dare say that this falls in the category of passages that if we went out and just went into a public place and started to ask people about this story, maybe even began telling the story, most people would know it, know of it, or be able to finish the story. It is very common to us. It is in our sphere of understanding. And that actually, I think, causes some difficulties with understanding what Jesus is doing here. And so, what I would like us to do this morning is to, is to see this parable in a very new way by using old eyes. You see, because today this parable has come to mean something different than what Jesus intended it 
It was meant to reveal what we think about ourselves. But the truth is, we hear this parable and we actually enjoy applying it to other people. When we hear this parable, who do we immediately identify with? Well, the tax collector, don't we? The one who declares that he is a sinner and needs forgiveness. And the irony of this is, is that in so doing, so quickly, we are actually avoiding the main point that Jesus desires to make. So I'd like us to take a look at these two men. A famous Pharisee. A terrible tax collector. And to see them with the eyes of our original audience to this text. Think about this, if you would. If you were sitting and listening to Jesus, what would you think of these two men? Now, there were, in the main, three main groups in Israel in Jesus' day. There were many sub-political units or cultures or organizations, but there were three main types of people. Rome had come in and conquered Israel. Israel was under their administration and their army. And the first group that we might identify with, or at least acknowledge, would be a group that we find in the Bible called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the people who were all for the status quo. Now, of course, when they were out at a party with their Jewish friends, they would say things like, I know, the Romans are horrible, aren't they? But what can you do about it? The Sadducees were the type of political people that, quite frankly, you all complain about. They're the kind of people like Congress that you say they talk a good game and they never do anything. They never want to solve any problems. They just seem only concerned about getting themselves reelected, about what office space they have. That's the Sadducees. They don't mind the status quo because, because they're on top. They're also the people who were in charge of formal religion in Israel. They were the ones who were in charge of the temple, in charge of the vestments, in charge of all of the sacrifices. They were the people who wanted to make sure that the piano was tuned well on Easter. They wanted to make sure the decorations were perfectly laid, that everyone was properly dressed, that everyone was on time. That's what they were involved with. The formal religion. And they were very happy to go along with whatever came so that they could get along. There's a second group of people in Jesus' day that you've heard of, and that is the Pharisees. Now, before your Pharisee meter kicks in and you immediately start saying, Pharisees bad, Pharisees bad, let's think a bit about who they are. These are the people who are opposed to Roman occupation of Israel. They're patriots. They don't like the fact that Rome is calling the shots. They're conservative. They want freedom. These are people who are concerned about their nation. And although they were concerned on some level with formal religion, they went to the temple. That was not their main thrust. You see, the main thing that they were focused upon was heart religion. They were in charge of the synagogues, the places where the Bible studies were, the places where VBS was held, catechism was done. 
The places where people really studied God's word and tried to apply it to their lives. They wanted people thinking about God, not just on festival days, but every single day of the week. They were moral, good people. The Pharisee was someone you would want as your neighbor. You would know he wouldn't take advantage of you. He wouldn't try and take something from you. He could be trusted with the keys to your car and house and would not even think about taking anything. There's a third group of people. We might call them sympathizers, collaborators. In the old days of World War II, we would call them quizlings. We Americans might know them unaffectionately as Benedict Arnold's. These were the people who had sold out to Rome, who did everything they could to build Rome up because they were benefiting. They didn't care if what they were doing was hurting their own people. They were actively supporting the cause of Rome. And the worst of all of the Benedict Arnolds, the worst traitors that there were, were the tax collectors. Because, you see, the tax collectors were the ones who did Rome's dirty work. You may have heard me say before that the only thing that Rome cared about from their conquered provinces was money. And they laid taxes on these provinces. But they couldn't be bothered collecting the taxes. And they knew that if they employed local people to collect the taxes, they would know who was rich and who was not. They would know who was hiding their money. They would know who really could afford to pay more. And so what they did was they told the tax collectors, you have to collect so much. Anything more than that is yours to keep. Now you can imagine how they would collect taxes then. They would get as much as they could. They would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze again so that they could get more and more. As a matter of fact, tax collectors were so hated that they were often the target of assassination. If you were a tax collector, you would want to make sure there was a wall to your back because you'd never know if someone would come up with a knife. These are the kinds of people that are here. And so if we ask this question, then we must ask ourselves, who would we identify with? Who would we think was the right kind of person? I think we would identify with people who are patriots like the rest of us. I think we would identify with people who generally wanted to do the right thing. You see, Jesus is telling a story here, and there is very clearly a good guy and a bad guy. And the good guy is not the tax collector. As a matter of fact, the Pharisee here, if he were in an old western, he would be wearing a big, white, ten-gallon hat. And the tax collector would not only have a black hat on, he'd have one of those villain mustaches that he could twirl just to make sure you knew he was the bad guy. The music when he entered would be ominous. We have to understand this before we too flippantly say, oh, I'm just like the tax collector. You see, we have to step back. We have to close our modern eyes and remember the parable as it's actually told. Because you see, when Jesus told this parable... Do you see verse 9? He didn't say that. 
He just told the parable. Luke supplies that afterwards to help us to understand it. And so we must ask ourselves this question. Whom would you rather have to your house for Easter lunch? A conservative, hard-working, upstanding citizen of Katy? Or a violent drug dealer? That's what you're faced with. So let's take a look at this first man, this, this famous Pharisee. Who is he? Well, Jesus is deliberately setting up a contrast between these two men. That's how parables work. They're short and to the point. They're grounded in real life. Everyone in this day would have known or known of a Pharisee or a tax collector. They would have been very real people to them. And the Pharisee is a man whose life revolves around religion and God and the temple. The tax collector is a man that we would be surprised to even see in church. The Pharisee is a man who does what's right. Look at what he says here in verse 11. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, he's a man who has no obvious vices. He doesn't steal from anyone, like, I don't know, tax collectors. He's honest and hardworking. He's not violent. He doesn't hang out with the bad crowd. He's the kind of man that you wouldn't mind if your teenager came up to you and said, you know, Bob the Pharisee and I are going to go out this afternoon. Is that okay? And you think to yourself, Bob's going to be as far from trouble as is possible. Sure, go out all day with him if you'd like. He's the epitome of a good moral man. But he also doesn't just avoid bad things. He has many virtues as well. He's faithful to his wife. The Pharisee is the kind of man that your wife tells you to be more like. You know, she'll say to you, he always takes care of his wife. You know, Mr. Pharisee never forgets his anniversary. And he always gets her something on her birthday. Why can't you be more like the Pharisee? Why can't you be more encouraging to your wife? He's faithful and honest He's good with business. He's the kind of man that you would want to have a contract with because you know he would never try to take advantage of you. But he's not just one who does right. He's also someone who is religious. Now, the Pharisee is not someone who is about the bare minimum. You know what that's like when you experience people who are only trying to do the absolute minimum that they can with respect to God, the Bible, and church. No. Look at what he says. He says, I, in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the Bible does prescribe, command fasting. But we have to understand it in context. Do you know how often the Bible commanded Jews to fast? Once per year. Once on the Day of Atonement. Look at the Pharisee. He fasts twice every week. So in a very real sense, he's a hundred times more religious than others who are doing what they're commanded to do. 
He tithes everything. Now, the Old Testament commanded tithing, but only of certain things and of certain times. You didn't have to tithe every single thing you get. Think about that in your own life, of how far beyond what we would think of doing. It would be like if you were with friends or at school, and someone gave you a candy bar, and you took a tenth and broke it off to bring it to church so that the pastor could eat it. It would be like as if you received a discount on something you were going to buy, and you took a tenth of the discount to bring to church. A tenth of every single thing that you have or that comes into your possession. And you can imagine here how scrupulous this man was. How focused he was on giving. He's at church every time the doors are open. And sometimes when they're not. His life revolves around religion. And he's also a man who believes in God. He's thankful to God, isn't he? He's praying to God and He's a man who, I dare say, shares a great deal of our theology. He believes in the sovereignty of God. He says, God, thank you that you did not make me like these other people. He acknowledges that God is the one who has made him as he is. We have to stop jumping to the conclusion that he is a liar and a hypocrite about everything he says. That when he says, I tithe, He's lying. That when he says, I fast, he's found a loophole. He's actually doing these things. He is the kind of man who wants to fix a broken, secular society and bring it back to God. Now that I've described him that way, he sounds a lot more like you and me, doesn't he? But how does he pray? For you see... Jesus gets to the heart of the matter here by showing us these prayers. He prays, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. And he does this, we see in verse 11, standing by himself praying. Now notice, he is standing off by himself. He has come up to the very front. He wants to be as close to God as possible, as close to the special seats as can be, and as far away from other people. He doesn't want to pray with others. He wants to be by himself. And you can actually even look at this phrase, and it means not only standing by himself, but it could mean praying to himself or praying by himself. He's encouraging himself. We can almost imagine that this is the religious version of a self-actualization mantra. That he is saying so that he feels better about who he is. He may even be praying out loud for others to hear. But this prayer is marked foremost by a complete lack of humility. By pride that is off the charts. Look at this very short prayer. And look how many times... He uses the word I. Don't worry about it. I've done the math for you. In a 33-word prayer, he uses the word I five times. That's 15% of the whole prayer just saying me. Who do you think he's focused on? 
Where do you think His direction is? This prayer isn't really about God at all. It's not even really to God. It's all about Himself and what He has done and who He is. Another thing about this prayer is, is that if He were truly a lover of God, He would know that the second great commandment is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. There's no love in this prayer. He thinks he loves all men, but how does he pray? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. And and the Greek there is actually very vivid. He says, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity. That I'm so different from them. And then he looks at one example of humanity, the tax collector, and rather than praying for him, rather than trying to see change in his life, he actually uses the prayer as a weapon against him. There's no love in this prayer at all. But I think the third and most damaging thing about this prayer is its self-justifying nature. He tells God all of the things that he has done. He says, look at me. I've kept the law. He's the kind of person who says... I've tried my very best to be good. And I've succeeded. I'm pretty good at it. And then he compares himself to the worst of people so that he looks even better. He says, I'm not like the bad men. But what's missing in this prayer? What's missing is any expression of need, isn't it? Look at it. He doesn't see his own sin. He doesn't ask God for forgiveness. He doesn't actually ask God for anything, does he? He thinks he's in really good shape. He doesn't even need God. He's like a patient that goes into a doctor and rather than hear about his own illness, he says, no, 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 please, show me all the charts of the really sick people. And do you have pictures of their scars? As if somehow that will make him feel better. He doesn't understand a perfectly holy God. You see, he prays here and he has no need for God. He has no need for the cross. He has no need for the empty tomb. And he has absolutely no need for Jesus. Then there's the second man. A tax collector. And who is he? Well, he is the scum of society. Tax collectors were so looked down upon, they were forbidden from holding or running for public office. They actually were not permitted to give testimony in a court. Because people just assumed that tax collectors, you know the saying, how do you know a tax collector is lying? When his lips are moving. He's always lying. He's always dishonest. They're more like untouchables than bureaucrats. You see, I think when we first hear tax collector, we picture in our minds sort of a nameless, faceless IRS agent in a short white sleeve shirt and a tie, who while he is telling you, I'm so sorry that your taxes are triple what you thought they were, I'm just following the code. No. This is someone who throws widows out in the street to make an extra buck who squeezes small businesses out of existence, 
who causes families to have to sell family members into slavery to pay his taxes. This is someone who does all of these horrible things, not in the name of progress, not even in the name of government or rule. He does all of it so he can get a little bit richer. He's a very bad man. And no one wants to be around him. Look at how he prays, or where he prays, rather. He prays afar off. No one wants to be near him. The temple, as it was shaped, was sort of a long rectangle. And on one end was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go, and only once a year. And then out from there was the holy place. And then out from there was the court of men, where the men would come and pray. And then out from there was the court of women because they were not allowed to approach as close. And then even beyond that was the court of the Gentiles where the people that the Jews called dogs, godless heathens, where they stood. That's where this Jewish tax collector stands because he can't get any closer. And how does he pray The Pharisee's posture would be a typical Old Testament prayer. He would stand with his arms outstretched and his eyes open, looking to heaven, praying to God. The tax collector can't even bring himself to lift his head. He looks down and he beats his breast. I actually think that this text is responsible for the way we pray. Have you thought about that? How did we pray earlier this morning? We closed our eyes and looked down in a gesture of humility. You see, he knows he is so far from God that he can't even look in his direction. He has no desire to compare himself to anyone else because he knows he's in bad shape. He's aware of his sin. He has no delusions. He's not thinking he's on his way to heaven. He knows he's on his way to judgment and hell. He doesn't just think about himself as a sinner in a very generic sense. I mean, if you ask someone if they're a sinner, if we went now to the mall or out somewhere and asked someone if they were a sinner, they'd probably say, well, sure, nobody's perfect. I do some things occasionally. That's not what he means. Actually, he's not saying I am a sinner. He's saying I am the sinner. There's a definite article here. I'm the worst of sinners. He's not trying to use this to an advantage. He knows he needs forgiveness. He knows his situation is desperate. He knows he can't have a quick sacrifice, a quick fixer-upper. He doesn't come to church just simply to waltz through and find satisfaction until the next time he feels bad. No, he is struck. He knows a word of assurance will not be enough. He knows he cannot make a deal with God because he's not in the position. He knows he can't plead promises of what he has done or plead the work that he has completed because he doesn't have any. And so what does he pray for? Look at what he says. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He looks to God and he says, I need your mercy. And the word here is very interesting. 
It's the same word that is used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, when it describes Jesus as our great and faithful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. That Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the place where justice and grace meet and are answered. Jesus is the one who resolves the problem of our sin. And this is what this sinner, this tax collector needs. He needs a mercy seat. He needs his sin to be wiped away. He needs the wrath of God to be stopped, turned away from him. This is where we see the third person in this story. Jesus, the justifier. You see, there's surprising good news in this story. If we are sitting listening to Jesus speak, if we are using ancient eyes and ears, we know who goes away justified. It's the guy who's like us, who's in church and owns a Bible and reads it and does good things and is kind to people. But you see, the good news that's surprising is all of those things are insufficient. Now, I'm not telling you to throw away your Bibles. I'm not telling you to go be mean to people. I'm not telling you to give up doing good things. But what Jesus is telling you is you cannot trust in any good thing you do. It's vain. You're like a Pharisee. You see, the one who is saved here, the one who is justified, is the one we don't expect. It's the one in the hole. It's the man whose sin has so piled up, he can't look up. And in a flash, he's right with God. You see, that's the power of grace and the gospel. That's the glory of the resurrection. It is not simply that all things are new and spring is sprung. It is knowing that when you have so much sin and misery and hate that is piled on your back from all of your broken relationships, from all of your regrets, from all of the things that you have done and said and thought that you should not have, from all of the people that you have hurt, that these don't need to be peeled off one layer at a time. That in meeting Jesus... They're all gone. Forever. That is the power of Jesus. Forgiveness is found in Christ. And in a flash, everything is gone. And then the reality is, is that your position in society means nothing to Jesus. Your position in the temple or the church means nothing to Jesus. Your outward works mean nothing to Jesus. Because what Jesus wants is your heart. This is where Luke puts verse 9 in for us. Do you see that? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated everyone else like garbage with contempt. You see, Jesus is telling us that the position of our heart is what is critical. And when we trust in ourselves, it shows up in a contempt for others, of seeing others of no worth. And we think we get our own worth by putting others down. Jesus is saying you can't be saved by what you do. 
But there's more good news. There's more good news that there is a victory that is found in Jesus. Because after all, this is what the resurrection is all about. The resurrection is the capstone on salvation. It is the ending point, the glory of the work of Jesus Christ. We are all familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, aren't we? We had it read this morning. But I would encourage you to focus on verses 3 and 4 today. For in them, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day. You see, the resurrection only has importance because of the grave and because of the cross. It lets us know that Jesus' work is done forever and that we need this work for none are righteous. No, not one. And because we must know that the wages of sin are death. But the free gift of life comes from Christ. You see, our sin and an awareness of it draws us down and we realize that we are dead men walking. But God enters the picture. Jesus died because of our sins. Jesus was put forward by God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. As a propitiation, as a what? As a mercy. As a mercy seat. This tax collector needed a mercy. He needed a mercy seat, and Jesus is that. You need a mercy. You need a mercy seat, and Jesus is that. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but never forget, He was raised for our justification. That is what the resurrection means. It means that God has put his stamp of approval on the work of Jesus. That the power of Jesus is seen for all. That death, which is the power of sin, could not hold Jesus. And we can have great hope. We don't have to wish we could have our sins forgiven. We don't need to strive to have our sins forgiven. We can know our sins are forgiven. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. His work is done. It is sufficient for us. It is victorious. Today is a day of victory. It's a reminder that we have victory in Christ. Do you have that? Do you see your need of a Savior? Are you trusting in Jesus yourself? Run to Jesus today. Do not try and pile up more works. Do not try and make yourself cleaner. Do not try and make yourself holier. Run to Jesus. He is the risen Savior. He is the one who has already shown Himself to be completely and utterly victorious over sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful that you are indeed a God who saves. There is none like you.
Lord, remind us not just today, but each and every day that we need a risen Savior. That we need hope. And our hope is only found in you. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.